I'd like to uh, start this morning by uh, thanking all of you for being here today. And I know that there are so many things that you could possibly be doing on a morning like this, <laughs> and uh, especially one that's so beautiful. So I appreciate you uh, spending some time with us. I already mentioned to uh, Tim, uh, there's going to be uh, the monthly uh, luncheon is today. Where are you going to be today? Table at the Market District on Main. Okay, near uh, near the Drexel. Oh, okay, I know where that is. Okay, good. Um, I won't be able to be there because um, I'm uh, officiating at a refuge ceremony this afternoon at the home of Kathy Jackson. So, uh, yeah, and so um, there's going to be, I think, five or six people taking refuge this afternoon. I have to fit them in where I can, you know, so. So that'll be at 2 o'clock this afternoon at Kathy's house. So if anybody uh, missed the announcement and has an interest in taking refuge, you can see me after. I'll be hanging out here. Also, I think they're going to be um, uh, helping to take things down after that word. So if anybody can stay down, uh, stay here after the, the talk ends at 12.30 to help uh, put things away because it is, they're getting ready. You can see the cloth and so forth. They're getting the things ready for the High Holy Days, which start this week. We'll be rooming with the folks at uh, um, Ohio Dominican University uh, starting next week. Um, I think starting, is it Tuesday night? Starting Tuesday night, we'll be at, or will we be at uh, Center for Pragmatic Buddhism Tuesday night for Chen Raisi for the next two weeks? And then we'll, on Sundays, we'll be at Martin DePoris Center at, at Ohio Dominican. Uh, uh, anybody here, um, were, was anybody here at Martin DePoris yesterday for the program with wasn't that good? I talked to two people. I talked to two people who had been to Stephen Hayes's program, and they were very delighted. They drove down the, the two, the couple that came from Toledo. Um, the, this fellow, I met this fellow um, and met both of them when I was teaching in Orange County a number of years ago. And uh, and Christopher, um, the gentleman of the couple, he he moved to Toledo uh, not too long ago to uh, be near his dad who was dying, and he took care of his dad and. And now they're living in Toledo. I said, I'm sorry, it's not Southern California. It's, it's different. Anyway. So anyway, we will be at Martin DePoris. Uh, we'll be at Center for Pragmatic Buddhism on Tuesday nights and at Martin DePoris on Sundays starting this week. And it'll be two weeks, and then we'll be back here. I think we're back here when, do you know? Oh, Tuesday, October 3rd? Okay, all right. All right. This is what we. This is this is our best guess. Okay. So um, today um, I'm going to be talking about two topics that are of interest and um, to, to me, and I'm hoping they'll be of interest to you, which is um, retreat and pilgrimage. Uh, I know maybe you came to hear something else, but um, the reason I wanted to talk about retreat and pilgrimage is that we've got two of them coming up, and I thought it would be interesting for uh, folks to know why it is that we're doing these things, uh, that there is a function to it. Um, let's see, Roberta is here. Roberta. Uh, Roberta just did a pilgrimage, um, and, uh, and it was a small one. You went to um, uh, Carmeling Three Retreat Center, and you met Kemper Rinpoche, is that right? Yes. Yeah. And so I'm going to ask you to say a few words about that in a minute. Uh, and uh, so, so she's been on a pilgrimage recently. Yeah, it won't be bad. Uh, and then uh, Tim has also been on a pilgrimage recently. Uh, where did you go, Tim? I went to 
So, okay, so he went to the stupa in Cresto. So has anybody else been on a pilgrimage to uh, a monastery or a holy place? Ooh, okay, where did you go, Anne? You went to KTD? That's that's the, the home monastery, right? And where did you go, Sue? I went to KTD and Carmel Lane. Where did you go? I went to see uh, Chogyam Trungpa Stupa at Red Feather Lake in Colorado. Uh, so you went to the Red Feather Lake Stupa of Chogyam Trungpa in Wow, that's, that's 108 feet tall. It's big. Uh, uh, who else over here has gone? Yes, where did you go, Audrey? Audrey? Jeep. Oh, Jeff. I don't know. Hi, I'm Kathy. Uh, <laughs> I went to McLeod Ganj, You went to McLeod Ganj? Yeah. That, that temple is amazing. Uh, the, 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 the Dalai Lama's temple at McLeod Ganj, you have to go up all of these stairs to get to it. And it's like, it's massive and, yeah. And... It's a, yeah, and, and like the door, you know, the door rings on the door. It's like you can put your head inside them. They're huge. Yeah, it's, it's really something. Uh, who else has been over here? Anybody else? Yes. You've been to KTD Monastery. So so um, I'm curious if anybody, uh, I don't mean to put Roberta on the spot. So if you, do you have anything you want to share from your trip, What was what it meant to you? Behind the gate, my alma mater, the three-year retreat center. Yeah. You can't see it. You can see the top. You can see the roof and the cupola at the top, but you can't see the inside. Yeah. I appreciate you sharing the story of going to Carmel Lang, the three-year retreat center, especially you were very fortunate that you got to meet Kempo Carter Rinpoche on that trip because a lot of people uh, don't get that opportunity to meet somebody of his of his amazing power. I think maybe uh, he was there when you were there, right, Anne? So, yeah, did you, uh, were you able to see him uh, when you went? Was he teaching that week? Oh, okay, you saw the Karmapa as well. Oh, boy. Yeah, that was that was really a scene. Was that the year that they had everybody in a tent outdoors? Oh my gosh, (laughs) there were there they put a tent in the courtyard at KTD, and five hundred people I think were in that tent. It it was warm. I I remember that. Yeah, but Karmapa was he's you know he kind of glows I think. (laughs) Well. the, the reason I wanted to, um, to talk about these experiences that people have had is that, um, and by the way, uh, I looked at, uh, Frank has the, uh, Frank has pictures of, of Kemper Bichel on, the, on his cell phone, and he also has the little, uh, a little video of the five Buddha shrine at the columbarium. 
and uh, so it's it's a really beautiful spot. And they have niches in the wall, uh, and that's where the um, the red granite urns are located with the Chenrezy mantra on them, and that's the little brass plates with people's names on them. And uh, Brad Butters, uh, his ashes are there, and um, and uh, Dwayne Harris, his ashes are there. And um, so, yeah, I'll be there later. Later, you know, I'm. I have the spot reserved, but so um, part of the reason that uh, I mentioned uh, the whole idea of pilgrimage and retreat is um, because I wanted to uh, draw your attention to an opportunity for both that we're going to have in the next month. Because in the next month, uh, KTC is going to have its annual fall retreat at, um, at the Glen Helen Nature Preserve. It's the first weekend in October. And uh, at, believe it or not, the same weekend, yeah, you have to pick, uh, Lama Tom, uh, who is uh, the resident teacher at the Athens uh, KTC, he's leading a pilgrimage to our home monastery, Karma Triana Dharma Chakra, for Kempo Karta Rinpoche's program, giving the long-form bodhisattva vows. And, uh, and so what I'm telling people who ask me, which one should I go to, I'm saying you can't go wrong. Just pick one, you can't go wrong. Uh, the opportunity to take the bodhisattva vow in its long, complete form from a person of such great bodhisattva activity as Kempo Karta Rinpoche, it doesn't happen often. And so um, if you've uh, taken it before, the bodhisattva vow before, or never taken it before, this is a fantastic opportunity. And uh, since we're going to do it as a carpool pilgrimage, it's like carpool karaoke but without the singing. We're doing it as a carpool pilgrimage. Um, the Lama Tom and his friends will be organizing carpools so that people can get there easily. There is a charge for the program and a charge to stay overnight. It, I think it clocks in at about $200, uh, and, uh, but, um, because I think the program is uh, $120 for non-members, $96 for members, and, um, and the uh, Dormitory, dormitory accommodations are 40 bucks a night, and that includes your meals. So, and, and, all of the, and all of the companionship you could possibly want. Because I think there's, uh, some of the dorms have six people in them and some have 12. Anyway, it's, it's a, we'll call it a bonding experience. And, uh, and also, uh, the same weekend, um, I'll be teaching uh, on mind training the Lojong slogans, and teaching the practice of Tonglen and compassion meditation at the annual fall retreat uh, in Glen Helen. And what's good about the fall retreat is that, and really about pilgrimage and retreat in general, is that we get to sort of unplug from our everyday life. We get to unplug from our everyday routine. We get to unplug from the mundane concerns such as having to figure out dinner, having to figure out uh, cleaning the house or taking care of things. You actually take some time out just for you and your practice. And in that way, I would say that 
whether you choose pilgrimage, the carpool pilgrimage, or if you choose the, um, the, the fall retreat, you can't go wrong. Because being able to leave behind those things that usually are so distracting, I don't know about you, but sometimes I have a hard time meditating at my house because I'm sitting there and I'm doing my best to meditate and keep my attention on the breath. And then I see that pile of laundry that needs to be folded. Or I see that letter that needs to be written. And it's a little bit distracting. But when I'm on the retreat, all I have is the shrine, which we bring a shrine. And we have uh, cushions on the floor to sit. And people can take walks in the forest and get to meet the Yellow Spring in person. It's a real place, sacred to the Native Americans. Uh, I tell people you can even take a nap if that's what you need to do. The idea of going on a retreat then is to be able to dedicate yourself for that period of time to just doing your practice, which for a lot of people is useful because it it gives them an experience of their practice that is beyond the ordinary. They they don't have the ordinary distractions. They can just sit and do their practice. And the same goes for pilgrimage. What's interesting about pilgrimage is that you are going to a sacred place to see a sacred object, such as a, a Buddhist monument, we have two people who've seen the Buddhist mound. How many people have done stupa pilgrimage? The word stupa, S-T-U-P-A, means mound. They're Buddhist monuments. They're shaped like a sitting Buddha in abstract with a spire on top. You've been to the one. You've been, yeah, you've been there. And you've been to the one in Cresto. Uh, they're rather amazing. And uh, for three years uh, in recent past, I, I led the KTD stupa pilgrimage. I did it for three years running. We, we did a tour of stupas in the southwest on a bus. It was fun. <clears throat> we went to Taos, Cuesta, Santa Fe, and to uh, uh, Crestone. And then the next year, we went to the Buddhist monuments of northeastern New York. We visited the one that Carmelang and we visited, uh, the, uh, there were several monasteries that we visited, and they also had stupas, including the large stupa that's on the banks of the Hudson River, overlooking the Hudson River at Kaju Tupton Choling. It's the one with the little chapel inside, and we went inside the little chapel and practiced there. And then the, the third year of the tour, I took people, it was a, it was a Colorado-only tour. We landed in Denver, got on the bus, went up to Red Feather Lakes to see the large stupa, and then went down to Crestone to see the four there, and then went over on the last day to Pagosa Springs, and in Pagosa Springs we went to the Taramandala Center and visited there. So what's happening in a pilgrimage? You're going on a journey to meet the Buddha. That's what a pilgrimage is. You're going on a journey to meet the Buddha. It's not as though you have to go too far because we have a Buddha here. And it has relics inside it. So you could even go on a pilgrimage here if you wanted to. But going uh, on a pilgrimage, you go to the stupa, you go to the, the monastery, and you bring yourself as you are. 
we bring ourselves as we are with our confusion, with our distraction, with our imperfections, we bring ourselves to the Buddha and we present ourselves in front of the Buddha and ask for healing, we ask for blessing, we ask for inspiration, we ask for uh, our meditation practice to be recharged. And that really is, to me, the main function of going on a pilgrimage. When I was on the pilgrimage to the Karmapa Stupa in Crestone, Colorado, we had the pleasure of meeting one of the men who built the stupa. And he's a bit of an eccentric. You have to be a little eccentric to live in the desert to begin with. You know, rats. Anyway, you have to be a little bit uh, eccentric to live in the desert. And he's an artist, and he made the most beautiful art that went inside the stupa that you will never see. He painted and helped to paint the, the pole that goes in the center that symbolizes the central channel of energy in the body of the Buddha and to which the packet of, of uh, relics is attached at the heart. And he said that in his opinion, his name's Paul Kloppenberg, Paul said that the stupa is like a dynamo, one of those machines that creates electricity as it as we feed it electricity. The idea is, he said, the, the stupa contains all of these holy objects, all of these sacred objects, and we bring to it our devotion, and we bring to it our faith and our confidence. And we circumnambulate, we walk around the stupa in a reverential devotional way uh, and praise the qualities of the Buddha who is enshrined inside it. And by doing that, we energize the stupa, Paul said, and it energizes us. And that's what folks who did the pilgrimages said that it did for them. They needed a, a bit of a jump start on their practice, or they needed to, they, they had something in particular. They were working on a bad habit they were trying to break, or a problem they were trying to resolve. And they took that with them on the pilgrimage and kept it and circumambulated and dedicated their practice to it. Kempel Kartarabache said, when you go before a stupa, you make offerings. So we had bowls of flowers that we offered everywhere, and we had bowls of water that we offered everywhere. We had kids who were our shrine keepers. They were marvelous. The children of a couple of people attending were in charge of the shrine, and they set it up everywhere we went, put out the brocades, put out the little water bowls, put out the flowers. And we had electric candles because in the Southwest, you know what a red flag warning is? Part of the reason you may not know what a red flag warning is is you've never lived in the desert. The Weather Service issues what's called a red flag warning when there is a danger of wildfires starting from a spark. And so that's why no fires are allowed in a red flag warning zone because they don't want to start a forest fire. So instead of lighting candles at these, uh, at these stupas in the red flag zone, we brought little electric candles and we walked them around and then put them on the stupa and prayed. And what we gained from that, Rinpoche said, was in, in, in uncountable. You couldn't count the virtue that comes from it. He said, because, he said, what you do when you get there is you make an aspiration. 
Like, may my practice get strong, or may I give up this bad habit, or may my compassion and wisdom grow, and so forth. And he said it is the same as though you made it in front of the Buddha personally. It's the same power and the same benefit. And so we did that everywhere we went. Rinpoche gave us a little liturgy, a little set of prayers that we were to say. And we said all of, uh, all of the prayers uh, at all of the stops. And it was amazing. So um, if you want to see the video about it, it's on YouTube. We did interviews with the people who went on the first pilgrimage, and they were so excited to share their stories as to why they went. Some people even became a little tearful as they talked about the inspiration they felt being in front of these amazing monuments. So the reason I'm talking to you about it is that I'd like to encourage you to take the time to either plan or dream about a pilgrimage, even if it's not something that you can do right now even if it's something that you perhaps can't afford to do right now or can't do in, in, in any way, shape, or form right now, make an aspiration. Say to yourself, someday I will go on a pilgrimage. Say to yourself, someday I'm going to buy that bus ticket and go with Lama Kathy. And uh, we're going to do that at some point in the future. Maybe we could start small. Maybe we could just go on a, a simple pilgrimage to the stupa over in Bloomington, Indiana, I mean, the idea is that we could do something that would help establish the, uh, the tradition of, of visiting and going on pilgrimage. At any rate, that's a little bit about pilgrimage. Retreat is somewhat similar to pilgrimage in that you take your time out, you do your practice, and you don't have other things on your mind. Unless, of course, you're me. And then I sit there saying, oh, that stuff, I'm leaving at home. Oh, I have work to do. Oh. But eventually, if you're patient and persistent, you can begin to let go even of those distractions. And you can become absorbed in your practice and gain more of the benefits of it. A lot of people leave retreat feeling refreshed. They feel that they are closer to their practice. They understand it better. And they're a little more dedicated to it. Although, if you're like me, you come back and you go back to your mundane ways. I know I do, but that's why I try to go on retreat or pilgrimage at least once a year. <laughs> I, need the, I need the jump start. And this is uh, another reason why it is so amazing that we are uh, uh, building a new center. Because this new center will contain a small stupa. It will contain uh, an image of the Buddha that has relics inside. And it will contain an entire set of the Buddhist scriptures. So the representation of the Buddha's body, speech, and mind will be right there in front of us every week when we sit and meditate. And so being able to create a place that could become a source of pilgrimage for other people is a very worthy and noble thing. When we were in Taos, New Mexico, for the first of the stupa pilgrimages, we arrived at the Tres Arejas uh, in this uh, very desolate environment. And there were a bunch of people there living off the grid. They didn't have running water. They didn't have electricity. 
They had big fences around their houses with spikes on top and dogs, lots of dogs that barked when you would go by. These are what I might call rugged individuals. And some of them, a few of them, are Buddhist. And their teacher said, build a stupa here. So in the middle of this place, this desolate place in the mountains, they built a stupa. And uh, when we first called them, because we found out where they lived, and called them and said, we're bringing a busload of 20 people to come and see your stupa. Their response was, we're busy. We're busy. We can't possibly host you. We're busy. You know, we work for a living, you know. And we're busy. We couldn't possibly host you. We're sorry. But you can park your bus at the end of the road and walk in. It's about a mile. And sorry about the lady in the wheelchair. She just can't come. But if you walk, be careful. It's hot during the daytime, and there are dogs. Did we mention the dogs? Some of them are not on chains. And so we said, hmm, we have to figure out how we're going to do this. Well, we figured out how to do it. Somebody was going to come with us with a family, and they had a car. They were going to follow behind the bus in their car. We figured it out. We would get there. We'd park the bus. We'd, we'd do a, ra- a, a relay getting everybody in the car and then getting them to the stupa and then the lady in the wheelchair and the, to the stupa and we did the whole thing. We did the whole thing and we were going to do it. And then uh, we went to our first stupa and the, the lama who explained how to build the stupa and told the people in Taos how to build it, I met him and he said, and he said oh, I hear you're going to uh, Taos. Uh, are they going to show you around? And I said, no, they're busy. They're working. And, uh, and they told us we would need to walk in. And he said, oh, okay. Well, anyway, so two days later, we're in Taos. And suddenly, as we park the bus and we're getting ready to start the relay, we see a dust cloud down the road. And that dust cloud is five SUVs. And they're coming to get us. They're coming to get us, to take us to the stupa. We texted into thin air, hoping someone would know we were coming. And nobody answered. But the, but the cars came. And we got there, and they showed us around, and they gave us tea. And we said, wow, we thought you guys were busy. And they said, uh, Lama called us <laughs> and said, it's our job. It's our job to host you. We're sorry for the reception we gave you on the phone. We're sorry. But you know, we just built it because Lama told us to. We didn't know you would come. So they didn't have a sense of of the heart connection of what pilgrimage was. They just built it out of faith and devotion to their teacher. They built it because their teacher asked them to build it. And they had no idea that they were creating this thing of beauty and inspiration that would be a magnet for other people seeking love, compassion, wisdom, and blessings. And so it was that something brilliant and wonderful happened in that horribly embarrassing moment for both of us. I was embarrassed. They were embarrassed. But in that wonderful, embarrassing moment, there was an opening 
I realized I needed to be more patient, and they realized that they needed to be welcoming. So we all had something to learn that day, and there was this wonderful moment of communion as these people who built it without knowing its true purpose met the people for whom it was built. And I, I must say it is one of the happiest memories I have is meeting those people who had no idea how special their work was. No idea. And uh, so at any rate, that's, um, that's a little bit uh, about pilgrimage and retreat. Um, I did a long retreat, so uh, if anybody is interested in learning about retreat, you can um, ask questions about it, because um, we've got discussion period now. I'd like to um, do discussion for the next 20 minutes or so, and then I'd like to uh, close about five minutes early, if I could, today, because we're going to be taking things apart for the, um, for the breakdown. Uh, but, uh, but I'd like to see if anybody has questions or curiosities. You can ask about pilgrimage retreat or any aspect of Buddhism. You can be like the Lutherans I just talked to this morning. They had lots of questions. Questions. Or you can share your own retreat experiences or your own pilgrimage experiences. We have a customer. Thank you, Tim. I was at the uh, stupa at Crestone. Is this on? Let's see if it is or not. Technical. <laughs> Speak up. <laughs> there you go. I was at the uh, stupa at Crestone, and I'm curious about uh, why uh, the Karmapa, 16th Karmapa, is is in it as opposed to the Buddha. I don't know. I sort of expected the Buddha, but right. Uh, could you talk a little bit about sure. that? Yeah, um, I think that. Um the, um, the, the stupa, uh, every stupa has a symbolism uh, that is architectural. There's architectural symbolism that is the same in all stupas. There's a, a base that is square with steps leading up to it. One of the set of steps is the four noble truths. The other set of four is the four immeasurables. And the, the base has, usually has lions depicted on it. So it's a lion throne depicting, uh, symbolizing that it, uh, an enlightened being sits upon it. Because the enlightened beings are called the lions of humanity. There's usually, um, uh, some, uh, stairway that goes up to a vase, which the stairway are the legs of the sitting Buddha and the vase is the torso of the sitting Buddha. The spire at the top is the face. Often on the square box called the harmaka, there's a um, there are a set of eyes drawn on there to indicate the eyes of the Buddha, and the spire is his is his the crown of his head, and um, and so all stupas are sacred to the Buddha. Different images will be placed in what's called the gao or the there's an amulet box on the front of it, and this particular one. 
was dedicated to the 16th Karmapa, who was in the process of creating Dharma communities in the United States when he passed away. And in fact, he died in the United States in 1981. And so the stupa was uh, consecrated in his memory, and that's uh, why his image, the image of the 16th Karmapa, is in it. Um, 200 acres of land were donated to Karmapa in the Crestone Valley, and the stupa was built on that land. And who knows, there may be some other type of spiritual community formed there in the future, but the stupa came first to ground and consecrate the area. So that's a little bit about why it was dedicated to him. Uh, the Karmapa is considered to be um, the, um, an emanation of both the Bodhisattva Chenrezig and the great Guru, Guru Rinpoche, but he is also going to be the sixth Buddha in his future lifetime. He'll be the sixth Buddha, the Buddha Lion's Roar. And so he's actually not separate from the Buddha in that regard. I'll never forget one time, uh, we were hoping the 17th Karmapa would come to the United States. He hadn't made plans to come yet. And, uh, and we were having discouragement. We were feeling discouraged, like he might not make it. And so Kempo Kartarimbache was up at the stupa with us one time. And he wanted us to circumnambulate and chant Karmapa Cheno, the mantra, saying, Karmapa, know me, bless me. And then he said, let's chant it with a melody. Karmapa Cheno, Karmapa Cheno, Karmapa Cheno, Karmapa Cheno. And then he told us to chant in English. Karma pa cheno, karma pa come quickly. Karma pa cheno, karma pa come quickly. He had us do that, which I thought was kind of a, an inspired moment. Hearing all of us, like 20 of us or something, going around. It was lovely. And uh, Karmapa was in the United States within a year or two, so it, I think it worked. Other, other things to talk about. Good, we have two. That's good. Well, uh, I was at KTD back in May. I don't know if you, you're just looking for people who were sure. there currently. Doesn't matter. And that was for the, uh, the program with Lama Sultram Yeshe. Oh, yeah. Healing. Yeah, the healing, yeah. And I, I had this op- opportunity. Somebody came into the uh, KTD, the teacher, and she was wondering if she could show her students the inside of the shrine room on the downtime. And I said, sure. And I then I cleared it with the uh, woman at the desk. Yeah. That was nice. Yeah. Isn't it wonderful to show people around the shrine room? Yeah. When, especially the kids when they come in, they're like, wow. <laughs> How old were the children? They're like 10, 11. Oh, I'll bet they were. I, I mean, because the, 
The Buddha statue at KTD uh, is 11 feet tall, and it sits on a base six feet high. And so it towers over you when you go up. You can you can look up at his face, and it's just so amazing. It's massive. And I've, I've seen people walk in, and they kind of go... You know, and it's just lovely because when your mom, when your mind momentarily goes blank, that's like Mahamudra, you know. So it's the you know, and I think it's lovely. It's lovely because there's that, and there's also, you know, Kempo Carter Rinpoche calls statues and paintings of the Buddha. He calls them created Nirmanakaya. Nirmanakaya means the physical body of the Buddha. And so when you create these nirmanakayas, like the images we have here, it's like the Buddha being present with the person. Because for many of us, Buddha is an idea and not a person who really lived there can give a blessing. But to see the created forms, it's like being in front of the Buddha. It's great. I'm glad you got to do that. Hi. Oh, Dalai Lama, this would have been 2006. Yeah, so I was fairly new to Buddhism. Um, so I'd never been to KTD, and I got there, and I was going to walk into the shrine room for the first time, and I was, I walked in, I was completely overwhelmed. I had to walk back out. Oh! Was, I just, the whole thing was overwhelming. Dalai Lama. Yeah, no, I understand. Yeah, so it was like so much energy. And then wow. Yeah. White building was still there. Anyway, and uh, Kempo Katha Rinpoche um, from across the courtyard, and I didn't know that he knew me or anything. He came, he made a beeline for me, and I was starting to panic. You know, he came right for me and gave me a, a beautiful head blessing. And I think what you said that that moment of blankness that happens. Um, I've been thinking a lot about groundlessness, and then from groundlessness comes these moments. Right. But that's what happened for me. Both those things happening just shifted me somehow and mm-hmm. uh, really took me more deeply on this path. Yeah. And every time I go into the shrine room, I remember that moment. Yeah. And it was, it's, it's a beautiful place to be. It's like my, my go-to place. Wow. I, you know, I, I really appreciate you sharing this story because I think that this is, this is very um, apropos because... When we come to Buddhism in general, not just into a shrine room, but when we come to Buddhism in general, it can be overwhelming because it's so big and it's so profound. And it seems to be like more than we could possibly put our arms around. Or, and, and, then per, and then what some people have reported, this may or may not have been your experience, but what some people experience is a feeling of like, oh my gosh, you know, this is like more than I can hold, more than I can handle. And and I think that what happens is is that our habitual patterns of not feeling good about ourselves or maybe our habitual patterns of negativity or whatever, they kind of like fountain up momentarily and obscure our vision, our spiritual vision sort of momentarily. But then when things settle... And we can see again. Then we realize that we're now different because we have we have actually met that groundless moment. We've actually met it. And the fact that Rinpoche was there for you 
is an example of the entirely 100% appropriate behavior. You know what I'm saying? It's like he said, okay, got to go get that one. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, because, because he knows kind of what people are thinking in many cases. He says, he says oh, don't, don't think your teacher knows everything because he doesn't always. But he knows a bunch. I, maybe, I, maybe I'll give him that. But. Yeah, and I, also for the Bodhisattva vow I took with him a couple of years ago, I had that same feeling. I, yeah. I walked into, on the way home, I walked into like one of those travel places that you stop, the big travel plaza. And I thought, oh, I want to bend at all these people. And then I thought, I can't do this. Aww. Uh, <laughs> but then it settled in and it opened up. Right. Right. So, so I can do what I can do. And it's just as subtle in. So both those experiences of that groundlessness have just benefited me tremendously. And hopefully I can benefit from it. So I see that. Well, no, thank you very much. And, and I think that the Bodhisattva vow, what's interesting about the Bodhisattva vow is that once you've taken the Bodhisattva vow, even if you can't figure out how to benefit others, you actually benefit them automatically by them seeing you. And that's what you know, Kimber Bache has said that. He said, once you take the Bodhisattva vow, every relationship you have with a person is meaningful. Even if they bump you on the street. Even if they look at you from a distance and hate you for some reason. Even if they dislike you or hate you, um, they, they benefit because you have now made a connection with them because of your aspiration to liberate them, regardless of how they feel about you. So the intellectual part of us can feel overwhelmed, but the Buddha nature never is overwhelmed, if you know what I mean. Um, I travel a bunch, and, um, and then even yesterday, you know, we were sitting at the, um, uh, at the uh, Independent Art Festival in Franklinton yesterday. Anybody else at Independent Art Festival yesterday? Anyway, we were down there. Oh, hi there. Hi, yeah. Um, and, uh, and, you know, the music was a little loud. We had to wear earplugs because we were right across from the stage. But, um, but I was able to, from time to time, just walk with my prayer wheel because I had to go find the restroom, you know. Anyhow, so I'm walking, and I'm just wearing my robes, and I'm spinning my prayer wheel, and I'm thinking, well... I know you're going to be looking at me and you're going to think, that's the weirdest thing I've seen all day. But may that benefit you. I mean, because what else? I mean, and so thank you so much for sharing that. That's great. Yeah. And this will be the last one. I just, uh, you mentioned uh, children and stupas, so I thought I might say a little bit about how, how our experience was. And uh, we were on a... Uh, you know, like a Chevy Chase vacation. With, with, uh, with oh, what, what was the name of that family? The Griswolds. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it was, uh, I have two sons and two stepsons uh-huh. and uh, two of the sons are Simon. So I have, I have oh, two no. sons named Simon. But anyway, we, uh, you know, we decided to make a, go out of our way to see that. Is it, is it the Great Stupa of Dharmakaya. It is called the Great Stupa of yeah. Dharmakaya. Good yeah. memory. So I, I had been there on that site for a seminary or a, a seminary yeah. of sorts, a Vajradhatu seminary back in uh, 1988, and had not been back since. This was about three years ago that, that we returned. Uh-huh. Uh So we, you know, we walked. It's quite a ways. I know you've been there, and uh-huh. you know, yeah, you have there. to walk in like it's a quarter mile, a half mile, or something yeah. to go in. Yeah. And it, it's just astounding. When you, 
you step into the view of it. And and as we were walking that long way in, the kids were just being kids and, you know, like spitballs at each other. Yeah, right. He touched me, mommy, and all this <laughs> stuff. And, uh, and then when we got there and, and walked into that part of the shrine, there was this immediate effect on all the kids. Yeah. Everybody just was immediately in yeah. a state of reverence. And um, oh. my, my young son, youngest stepson, uh, Simon Charles, uh-huh. he's, he's kind of a pistol. You know, he's, he's okay. about 10 right now. And he's Tough just, guy. Yeah, I mean, he's just always, you'd have to meet him. He's very smart, but ornery. Yeah. And he, he we almost had to pull him out of there. Oh. You know, he just, oh. he just connected with that place and he took his seat and he, he did not want to leave. Oh. You know, it was really, it was really That's touching. Sweet. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, I, I really, really appreciate you sharing that story. Um, I can't remember who, who was here during the relic tour. Anybody here during the relic tour? Yeah. And I remember, uh, Kim, you'll know this because, um, were you with us when we went to Cleveland that one time? No, we, there was a, okay. The, one of the places we went, um, we couldn't, we just didn't want to leave. And the and the and the relic tour caretaker said, "Oh, that's how it is. People come and they don't want to go." And and I think that's because there's this resonance, you know. There's this kind of resonance between the Buddha that's here and the Buddha that's here inside us. And that resonance is something that we can feel and that we can uh, acknowledge and know. And uh, and I think that. The fact that you that your your son had that experience is just it's marvelous, and that shows you what our possibilities are as people. It, we we can actually change in the moment, just in a moment. And I I was like that when when I, I was thinking that that you were with me, Kim, on that trip when we went to Cleveland. But I I've got my people confused as always. I don't know where I am half the time. Anyway. But uh, but we didn't. I, I I just kept sitting and sitting and did not want to leave. But that you know you have to go back to the real world because the only reason you go on retreat, the only reason you go on pilgrimage is so you can come back. So um, we'll stop here and um, uh, and then sit quietly for just a moment and uh, mentally dedicate the goodness of this session. We dedicate the goodness of this session to all beings that they may all make the pilgrimage to the Buddha nature within them, and that meeting the Buddha outside, they will come to know and appreciate the Buddha inside. Gaining enlightenment, may they emanate in all directions so that all beings have the opportunity to meet the Buddha. We dedicate the merit with this thought in mind. Okay, thank you, thank you, thank you.